Chapters 10 and 11 of The Red Battleflyer by Captain Manfred Freiherr von Richthofen. Translated by T. Ellis Barker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter 10 A Flying Man's Adventure. End of March 1917. The name Siegfried Position is probably known to every young man in Germany. During the time when we withdrew towards the Siegfried line, the activity in the air was, of course, very great. We allowed our enemies to occupy the territory which we had evacuated, but we did not allow them to occupy the air as well. The chaser squadron which Bolka had trained looked after the English flying men. The English had hitherto fought a war of position in the air, and they ventured to abandon it for a war of movement only with the utmost caution. That was the time when Prince Frederick Charles gave his life for the fatherland. In the course of a hunting expedition of the Bolka Chaser Squadron, Lieutenant Voss had defeated an Englishman in an aerial duel. He was forced to go down to the ground and landed in neutral territory between the lines in no man's land. In this particular case we had abandoned a stretch of territory, but the enemy had not yet occupied it. Only English and German patrols were about in the unoccupied zone. The English flying machine was standing between the two lines. Our good Englishman probably believed that the ground was already in English possession, and he was justified in thinking so. Lieutenant Voss was of a different opinion. Without a moment's hesitation he landed close to his victim. With great rapidity he transferred the Englishman's machine-guns and other useful things to his own aeroplane, took a match, and in a few minutes the English machine stood in flames. Then he waved smilingly from his victorious aeroplane to the English, who were rushing along from all sides, and was off. My First Double Event The 2nd of April, 1917, was a very warm day for my squadron. From my quarters I could clearly hear the drum-fire of the guns, which was again particularly violent. I was still in bed when my orderly rushed into the room and exclaimed, "'Sir, the English are here!' Sleepy as I was, I looked out of the window, and, really, there were my dear friends circling over the flying ground. I jumped out of my bed and into my clothes in a jiffy. My red bird had been pulled out and was ready for starting. My mechanics knew that I should probably not allow such a favorable moment to go by unutilized. Everything was ready. I snatched up my furs and then went off. I was the last to start. My comrades were much nearer to the enemy. I feared that my prey would escape me, that I should have to look on from a distance while the others were fighting. Suddenly one of the impertinent fellows tried to drop down upon me. I allowed him to come near, and then we started a merry quadrille. Sometimes my opponent flew on his back, and sometimes he did other tricks. He had a double-seated chaser. I was his master, and very soon I recognized that he could not escape me. During an interval in the fighting, I convinced myself that we were alone. It followed that the victory would accrue to him who was calmest, who shot best, and who had the clearest brain in a moment of danger. After a short time I got him beneath me without seriously hurting him with my gun. We were at least two kilometers from the front. I thought he intended to land, but there I had made a mistake. Suddenly, when he was only a few yards above the ground, he once more went off on a straight course. He tried to escape me. That was too bad. 
I attacked him again, and I went so low that I feared I should touch the roofs of the houses of the village beneath me. The Englishman defended himself up to the last moment. At the very end, I felt that my engine had been hit. Still I did not let go. He had to fall. He rushed at full speed right into a block of houses. There was little left to be done. This was once more a case of splendid daring. He defended himself to the last. However, in my opinion, he showed more foolhardiness than courage. This was one of the cases where one must differentiate between energy and idiocy. He had to come down in any case, but he paid for his stupidity with his life. I was delighted with the performance of my red machine during its morning work and returned to our quarters. My comrades were still in the air, and they were very surprised when, as we met at breakfast, I told them that I had scored my thirty-second machine. A very young lieutenant had bagged his first aeroplane. We were all very merry and prepared everything for further battles. I then went and groomed myself. I had not had time to do it previously. I was visited by a dear friend, Lieutenant Voss of Bolke's squadron. We chatted. Voss had downed on the previous day his twenty-third machine. He was next to me on the list and is at present my most redoubtable competitor. When he started to fly home, I offered to accompany him part of the way. We went on a roundabout way over the fronts. The weather had turned so bad that we could not hope to find any more game. Beneath us there were dense clouds. Voss did not know the country, and he began to feel uncomfortable. When we passed above Arras, I met my brother, who also was in my squadron, and who had lost his way. He joined us. Of course, he recognized me at once by the color of my machine. Suddenly we saw a squadron approaching from the other side. Immediately the thought occurred to me, now comes number 33. Although there were nine Englishmen, and although they were on their own territory, they preferred to avoid battle. I thought that perhaps it would be better for me to repaint my machine. Nevertheless, we caught them up. The important thing in aeroplanes is that they are speedy. I am nearest to the enemy and attacked the man to the rear. To my greatest delight I noticed that he accepted battle, and my pleasure was increased when I discovered that his comrades deserted him. So I had once more a single fight. It was a fight similar to the one which I had had in the morning. My opponent did not make matters easy for me. He knew the fighting business, and it was particularly awkward for me that he was a good shot. To my great regret, that was quite clear to me. A favorable wind came to my aid. It drove both of us into the German lines. My opponent discovered that the matter was not so simple as he had imagined. So he plunged and disappeared into a cloud. He had nearly saved himself. I plunged after him and dropped out of the cloud, and as luck would have it, found myself close behind him. I fired and he fired without any tangible result. At last I hit him. I noticed a ribbon of white benzene vapor. He had to land for his engine had come to a stop. He was a stubborn fellow. He was bound to recognize that he had lost the game. If he continued shooting I could kill him, for meanwhile we had dropped to an altitude of about nine hundred feet. However, the Englishman defended himself exactly as did his fellow countrymen in the morning. He fought until he landed. When he had come to the ground, I flew over him at an altitude of about thirty-five feet in order to ascertain whether I had killed him or not. What did the rascal do? He took his machine-gun and shot holes into my machine. 
Afterwards, Voss told me that if it had happened to him, he would have shot the airman on the ground. As a matter of fact, I ought to have done so, for he had not surrendered. He was one of the few fortunate fellows who escaped with their lives. I felt very merry, flew home, and celebrated my thirty-third aeroplane. End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 My Record Day The weather was glorious. We were ready for starting. I had as a visitor a gentleman who had never seen a fight in the air or anything resembling it, and he had just assured me that it would tremendously interest him to witness an aerial battle. We climbed into our machines and laughed heartily at our visitor's eagerness. Friend Schaefer thought that we might give him some fun. We placed him before a telescope, and off we went. The day began well. We had scarcely flown to an altitude of six thousand feet when an English squadron of five machines was seen coming our way. We attacked them by a rush, as if we were cavalry, and the hostile squadron lay destroyed on the ground. None of our men was even wounded. Of our enemies, three had plunged to the ground, and two had come down in flames. The good fellow down below was not a little surprised. He had imagined that the affair would look quite different, that it would be far more dramatic. He thought the whole encounter had looked quite harmless, until suddenly some machines came falling down, looking like rockets. I have gradually become accustomed to seeing machines falling down, but I must say it impressed me very deeply when I saw the first Englishman fall, and I have often seen the event again in my dreams. As the day had begun so propitiously, we sat down and had a decent breakfast. All of us were as hungry as wolves. In the meantime, our machines were again made ready for starting. Fresh cartridges were got, and then we went off again. In the evening we could send off the proud report. Six German machines have destroyed thirteen hostile aeroplanes. Volka's squadron had only once been able to make a similar report. At that time we had shot down eight machines. Today one of us had brought low four of his opponents. The hero was a Lieutenant Wolf, a delicate-looking little fellow in whom nobody could have suspected a redoubtable hero. My brother had destroyed two, Schaefer two, Fessner two, and I three. We went to bed in the evening, tremendously proud, but also terribly tired. On the following day we read with noisy approval about our deeds of the previous day in the official communique. On the next day we downed eight hostile machines. A very amusing thing occurred. One of the Englishmen whom we had shot down, and whom we had made a prisoner, was talking with us. Of course, he inquired after the red aeroplane. It is not unknown even among the troops in the trenches, and is called by them Le Diable Rouge. In the squadron to which he belonged there was a rumor that the red machine was occupied by a girl, by a kind of Jean d'Arc. He was intensely surprised when I assured him that the supposed girl was standing in front of him. He did not intend to make a joke. He was actually convinced that only a girl could sit in the extravagantly painted machine. Moritz The most beautiful being in all creation is the genuine Danish hound, my little lapdog, my Moritz. I bought him in Austin from a brave Belgian for five marks. His mother was a beautiful animal, and one of his fathers also was purebred. I am convinced of that. I could select one of the litter, and I chose the prettiest. Zoomer took another puppy and called it Max. Max came to a sudden end. He was run over by a motor car. Moritz flourished exceedingly. 
He slept with me in my bed and received a most excellent education. He never left me while I was in Ostend and obtained my entire affection. Month by month Moritz grew, and gradually my tender little lapdog became a colossal big beast. Once I even took him with me. He was my first observer. He behaved very sensibly. He seemed much interested in everything and looked at the world from above. Only my mechanics were dissatisfied when they had to clean the machine. Afterwards Moritz was very merry. Moritz is more than a year old, and he is still as childlike as if he were still in his teens. He is very fond of playing billiards. In doing this he has destroyed many billiard balls, and particularly many a billiard cloth. He has a great passion for the chase. My mechanics are highly satisfied with the sporting inclinations, for he has caught for them many a nice hare. I do not much approve of his hunting proclivities. Constantly he gets a whacking if I catch him at it. He has a silly peculiarity. He likes to accompany the flying machines at the start. Frequently the normal death of a flying man's dog is death from the propeller. One day he rushed in front of a flying machine which had been started. The aeroplane caught him up, and a beautiful propeller was smashed to bits. Moritz howled terribly, and a measure which I had hitherto admitted was taken. I had always refused to have his ears cut. One of his ears was cut off by the propeller. A long ear and a short ear do not go well together. Moritz has taken a very sensible view of the world war and of our enemies. When in the summer of 1916 he saw for the first time Russian natives, the train had stopped and Moritz was being taken for a walk. He chased the Russian crowd with loud barking. He has no great opinion of Frenchmen, although he is, after all, a Belgian. Once when I had settled in new quarters, I ordered the people to clean the house. When I came back in the evening, nothing had been done. I got angry and asked the Frenchman to come and see me. When he opened the door, Moritz greeted him rather brusquely. Immediately I understood why no cleaning had been done. The English Attack Our Aerodrome Nights in which the full moon is shining are most suitable for night flying. During the full moon nights of the month of April our English friends were particularly industrious. This was during the Battle of Arras. Probably they had found out that we had comfortably installed ourselves on a beautiful large flying ground at Douai. One night when we were in the officers' mess the telephone started ringing and we were told, The English are coming. There was a great hullabaloo. We had bomb-proof shelters. They had been got ready by our excellent Simon. Simon is our architect, surveyor, and builder. We dived down into shelter, and we heard actually, at first a very gentle humming, and then the noise of engines. The searchlights had apparently got notice at the same time as we, for they started getting ready. The nearest enemy was still too far away to be attacked. We were colossally merry. The only thing we feared was that the English would not succeed in finding our aerodrome. To find some fixed spot at night is by no means easy. It was particularly difficult to find us because our aerodrome was not situated on an important highway or near water or a railway by which one could be guided during one's flight at night. The Englishmen were apparently flying at a great altitude. At first they circled around our entire establishment. We began to think that they had given up and were looking for another objective. Suddenly we noticed that the nearest one had switched off his engine. So he was coming lower. Wolf said, Now the matter is becoming serious. 
We had two carbines and began shooting at the Englishman. We could not see him. Still the noise of our shooting was a sedative to our nerves. Suddenly he was taken up by the searchlights. There was shouting all over the flying ground. Our friend was sitting in a prehistoric packing case. We could clearly recognize the type. He was half a mile away from us and was flying straight towards us. He went lower and lower. At last he had come down to an altitude of about three hundred feet. Then he started his engine again and came straight towards the spot where we were standing. Wolf thought that he took an interest in the other side of our establishment, and before long the first bomb fell, and it was followed by a number of other missiles. Our friend amused us with very pretty fireworks. They could have frightened only a coward. Broadly speaking, I find that bomb-throwing at night has only a moral effect. Those who are easily frightened are strongly affected when bombs fall at night. The others don't care. We were much amused at the Englishman's performance and thought the English would come quite often on a visit. The flying piano dropped its bombs at last from an altitude of 150 feet. That was rather impertinent, for in a moonlit night I think I can hit a wild pig at 150 feet with a rifle. Why, then, should I not succeed in hitting the Englishman? It would have been a novelty to down an Englishman from the ground. From above I had already had the honor of downing a number of Englishmen, but I have never tried to tackle an aviator from below. When the Englishman had gone, we went back to the mess and discussed among ourselves how we should receive the English should they pay us another visit on the following night. In the course of the next day our orderlies and other fellows were made to work with great energy. They had to ram into the ground piles which were to be used as a foundation for machine guns during the coming night. We went to the butts and tried the English machine guns which we had taken from the enemy, arranged the sites for night shooting, and were very curious as to what was going to happen. I will not betray the number of our machine guns. Anyhow, they were to be sufficient for the purpose. Every one of my officers was armed with one. We were again sitting at mess. Of course, we were discussing the problem of night flyers. Suddenly an orderly rushed in shouting, They are there! They are there! and disappeared in the next bomb-proof in his scanty attire. We all rushed to our machine-guns. Some of the men who were known to be good shots had also been given a machine-gun. All the rest were provided with carbines. The whole squadron was armed to the teeth to give a warm reception to our kindly visitors. The first Englishman arrived exactly as on the previous evening, at a very great altitude. He went then down to one hundred and fifty feet, and to our greatest joy began making for the place where our barracks were. He got into the glare of the searchlight. When he was only three hundred yards away, someone fired the first shot, and all the rest of us joined in. A rush of cavalry or of storming troops could not have been met more efficiently than the attack of that single impertinent individual flying at one hundred and fifty feet. Quick firing from many guns received him. Of course, he could not hear the noise of the machine guns, the roar of his motor prevented that. However, he must have seen the flashes of our guns. Therefore I thought it tremendously plucky that our man did not swerve, but continued going straight ahead in accordance with his plan. At the moment he was perpendicularly above us, we jumped quickly into our bomb-proof. It would have been too silly for flying men to die by a rotten bomb. As soon as he had passed over our heads, we rushed out again and fired after him with our machine-guns and rifle. Friend Schaefer asserted that he had hit the man. Schaefer is quite a good shot. 
Still, in this case, I did not believe him. Besides, every one of us had as good a chance at making a hit as he had. We had achieved something, for the enemy had dropped his bombs rather aimlessly, owing to our shooting. One of them, it is true, had exploded only a few yards from the Petit Rouge, but had not hurt him. During the night the fun recommenced several times. I was already in bed fast asleep when I heard in a dream anti-aircraft firing. I woke up and discovered that the dream was reality. One of the Englishmen flew at so low an altitude over my habitation that in my fright I pulled the blanket over my head. The next moment I heard an incredible bang just outside my window. The panes had fallen a victim to the bomb. I rushed out of my room in my shirt in order to fire a few shots after him. They were firing from everywhere. Unfortunately, I had overslept my opportunity. The next morning we were extremely surprised and delighted to discover that we had shot down from the ground no fewer than three Englishmen. They had landed not far from our aerodrome and had been made prisoners. As a rule we had hit the engines and had forced the airmen to come down on our side of the front. After all, Schaefer was possibly right in his assertion. At any rate we were very well satisfied with our success. The English were distinctly less satisfied, for they preferred avoiding our base. It was a pity that they gave us a wide berth, for they gave us lots of fun. Let us hope that they come back to us next month. End of chapter 11. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.